Hello, fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. You're listening to 40 and 20, the watch with a podcast with your hosts, Andrew and my good friend Everett. Here we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, how are you? I'm so good. Speaking of talking about drinks, uh, you you managed to like drink like a third of that beer in between the time you cracked it and your time you started talking. I was like, this isn't going to work out. I'm a pro. <laughs> and it totally did. Well done, Andrew. I'm really, uh, I, I'm actually. Oh, that was. And, it's, and I didn't even shotgun it. <laughs> uh, I'm doing really well. I am. Uh, I'm, I'm having a great weekend. Things are very exciting. Uh, Why? It, you know, just stuff is happening. Cool stuff is happening. We, we don't, we're not here to talk about my good weekend. Andrew, okay. how, how are you? Uh, I'm, I don't know. The jury is out. I've been up for um, 19 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. I, I overslept today because uh, we're recording it at a different time yes, than usual. It's, yes. not, it's not Tuesday evening. It's Sunday early afternoon. Um, this is usually my sweet spot to be waking up. Slept right through my alarms. And my wife came, woke me up and was like, hey, Everett's here. Like, Neat. No, 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 you're supposed to be awake. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I am supposed to be awake. So I'm a, I'm just still a touch in that, like, jolted awake mode. This beer is helping. Yeah, yeah, it is. And we're in studio, so everything is starting to make sense around me. The world is no longer spinning. This is my my rock right now. And And we're recording at a different time. We're recording at a different time. <laughs> For a good reason, because we've got we made a promise to you guys a while ago. We made a promise mm-hmm. to you that we were there. There was a couple brands at Wind Up, a couple brands at Wind Up that everybody we talked to was like, "You guys got to go check those folks out. You guys got to go. You guys got to check these out. This is my favorite thing at Wind Up. There's two brands. One of those was Abingdon, mm-hmm. and we had Abingdon on the show. Completely lovely, super interesting uh, uh, approach to the watch industry. We had her on the show. We made one other promise to you. And that's that we were going to track down Richard of Studio Underdog. Yeah. And we did it. Finally. We did it. Finally. Uh, to, to no fault of Richard's. This has been a long a long time coming. Uh, I'll take the blame entirely. Is that what I do in this I think situation? That's, I think that's the, probably that's the best answer. I'll take the, blame. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the blame entirely. Nonetheless, today, joining us from Brighton. In the UK, we've got the owner, the face of the, per the website, founder, the head of design, and the marketing manager for Studio Underdog, Richard Bentz. Welcome to 40 and 20 Watch Cooker Podcast. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me. <laughs> You're, you, thank you for joining us and thank you for being patient with us. And I'm so glad to finally have you here. I mean, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. I think you guys have got one of my one of my favourite uh, podcast jingles to to get to get the show going. I was quite glad that I actually get to hear it a lot. I think a lot of the time that's added in, in post, but I got to kind of you know really feel the the spotlights come down, the jingle come on, and you know I feel like I'm in the show. Oh yeah, we we produce live, and it's purely laziness. Like, <laughs> we produce purely in flight, so so that way we don't have to do very much after the fact. I, I no will post, say okay. it does 
it, it does make the 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 post podcast editing process easier. Um, and and frankly, I think I think it does. It gets you in the mood, right? It's like that fifteen seconds that sort of puts you in your moment of zen. Mm-hmm. Get your podcast voice on. It's time. We're ready. And here we are. And here we are. So Richard, studio underdog. Probably, at least in the enthusiast microbrand world, the hottest brand of 2022, I'd guess. Um, holy shit, right? Yeah, that 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 still feel doesn't quite feel real, but uh, it always surprises me when when people are happen to be aware of the brand because it's it's a fairly new thing. It's something I only started, you know, just over eighteen months ago. So for it to kind of have a reputation where you know you guys might be thinking that is is pretty insane. Well, and and I'll tell you, it, it's not for nothing that we think that. Um, we do when we do wind up, we have you know this year was nice. They gave us an hour to sort of run around and grab brands, and that's that's tricky. An hour is is not really enough time to do it because no. you, you're running from brand to brand. You're, you're trying to, you know, one of us will be doing an interview and Andrew will be trying to catch someone's eye who's got three people in front of him to be like, I need, you know, five minutes. And, and you know, if we get them, we get them. And if not, because there's 17 people at their table, um, then we just need to move on and get someone else. So, but... I think we did for this year, we interviewed seven people for our post wind up show. We had seven interviews that we went with. And I would say five of those, five of the people that we interviewed, um, quoted you, cited you as mm-hmm. the most interesting thing at wind up. So of the seven interviews, five of them said, you know, we said, what's the coolest thing you've seen? Studio underdog. I like to think it was probably uh, it's probably the watermelon that I got I got carved. I think that seemed to to catch a lot of a lot of people's eyes, and it's funny to think that probably one of the biggest draws to to the table wasn't wasn't necessarily the watches. It was actually this uh, this watermelon that I I'd got carved with the uh, the wind up wind up logo. The wind in up it. logo. So you didn't carve that. That was that was every time I walked by there was your I couldn't get to your table. Yeah. Ever. I'm not I'm not a big guy, so I'm not gonna like fight my way through a mosh pit. Uh, you were always loaded down with people, so you you didn't carve that that watermelon yourself. Then. No, I didn't. I uh, you know you can find anyone to do anything in New York, and I a couple of weeks before the show, I googled watermelon carver in New York, and the first link that popped up. I sent them a message and and yeah, got them to do it the the day before the show. Was couriered over a guy on a moped, uh, brought it over uh, sort of minutes before the show, and it somehow it lasted the the three days. Every night, I every yeah, at the end of every show, I'd wrap it in cling film. I stuck it in the in the fridge, which uh, fortunately there was a big uh, fridge freezer um in the basement stuck it there every morning went to get it to see see if it was kind of turned to mush and each each day it was still standing and yeah man it managed to last the full three days which uh, i was pretty impressed with did did you have to like spray it with lemon juice or anything or uh no i like i wrapped it with cling film and then in the in the mornings uh, on the last day i kind of 
tried to literally with uh, one of my credit cards try to take off some of the kind of the the fleshy layer to make it look slightly more fresh again which actually worked my my girlfriend gave me a really weird look and was was wondering what on earth I was doing but yeah it, it seemed to it seemed to have the desired effect which is good New York is such a weird place it's i mean there's everything there's everything in everything that could possibly exist exists in New York it feels like watermelon carvers with mopeds yeah Right. You know, he said the first one I found, meaning there was more. There were more. <laughs> yeah. Yielded results. Yikes. Exactly. There, so was, this was, there was. Yeah. This was your first wind up. This was my first wind up. Yeah. This was my my first time stepping foot in the US as well. So it was, uh, yeah, quite an exciting trip. And as you said, the, the wind up was kind of it was nonstop. It was it was it was great talking to so many enthusiasts that I've not had a chance to kind of get in front of myself, let, let alone my watches. So, yeah, it was it was so much fun. But my voice after the first couple of days was was totally gone from you know just just from talking and uh, yeah, but no, screaming it was a, a lot of in fun. that space. Yeah, screaming just to be heard in there. Right. It was insane. It, I couldn't I couldn't believe the number of number of people. And it was it was a it was a huge space, but there was just a constant you know i couldn't tell you of a time where there was sort of a, a, a limbo uh, of any kind it was just it was just non-stop there was there was always people there uh which is yeah honestly i was super impressed uh by the whole show and yeah super, really really enjoyable and how long were you in the u.s for so the show itself was three days but you know, was, couldn't think of a better excuse to make a bit of a holiday of it. So I stayed for eight nights in total in the end. So, yeah, three or four days of kind of with my watch hat on and then about four days to, to be a tourist and explore the city. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Went and saw an NBA game, which was an absolute highlight. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I got to made the most of it for sure. Who did you go see play? <laughs> uh went and saw the the Knicks, the New York Knicks versus the Charlotte Hornets uh, at Madison Square, Square Gardens. That's kind of like uh that's that's one of the the few meccas yeah. for NBA basketball. It's Madison Square, MSG as it were. Yeah, it's like pinnacle NBA viewing. It was it was incredible. Like I'm um, the UK doesn't was really Spike, have much of a Spike scene Lee there? For, for basketball. Uh, Spike Lee, no, unfortunately not. But the UK doesn't really have much of a, a basketball um, scene, so I, you know, I I know the rules of the sport. That's about it. But I, I didn't really quite understand how huge it was, and 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 not only the athletes, it was insane to watch, but just the show as a whole. You know, every t you know every time out, something was going on. There would be the cheerleaders or a you know, an award ceremony or a t-shirt cannon. It was just, it was nonstop action. And yeah, for, for me, it was, it was something else. And that's early season basketball too. You're not looking like that's, that was a pretty tame environment for, for a game. Yeah. Stuff yeah. gets cutthroat towards the end of the yeah. season. Yeah. I can <laughs> imagine. I think we, I think we got quite lucky because it was, it was a super close game as well. So that kind of kept, kept everyone kind of engaged and it went, went to, extra time or overtime or, or whatever um so yeah it was it was honestly it was so much fun so that's it's on my on my to-do list to do anytime i i do come <coughs> to the us i think what was the coolest thing you saw in new york 
Um, I liked the, uh, the uh, I don't know what it's called, the, the walk, the, it's sort of uh, Skyline, Skyline Walk, something like that. Oh, I, I guess I don't know what that is. Oh, really? But it I was cool. It's, it's something, it's something I need to check out, apparently. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of a, a kind of a Skyline, I think that's what it's called. It's sort of a walkway that's, I believe, built on top of or along a, a redundant railroad, a railway track. So it kind of goes through. Uh-huh. I do know along. what you're talking about. I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Cool. So that that was that was really really good fun. But but yeah, to to me the highlight was definitely that that NBA game. It was something that I, I wasn't expecting to to enjoy <laughs> as much as I did. Are you a basketball fan now? Yeah, I, I could. Yeah, I could. If the games weren't on at sort of two three a.m. in the morning, I, I think I could definitely. Right. Uh, yeah, if I moved to the U.S., I'd, that would that would probably be my uh, my sport of choice. I think after that. It's a hundred percent my sport of choice. Does the NBA do London games? They do. They they've yeah. done a few games in London, not very many. It's usually one or two a year. Yeah, but they're priced like super difficult to get tickets to, and a total pain in the neck. So, what what about like when American football comes to London? Is that like a big spectacle, or is it? Are they begging people to come? No, I think it is. I, you know, I think it is a big, a big show. It's I've not been to one myself, but the kind of the the first person uh, feedback I can I can say is that any time there's there's a game on, uh, you know, any sort of American sport, even even ice hockey, uh, occasionally, you can tell just because of how busy the tubes are in terms of people mm-hmm. getting to and from the game. And, you know, looking and seeing sort of NFL shirts and trying to figure out what on earth is going on. I think there was one a couple of weeks ago and I was on the tube and there was a football game. There was an Arsenal game as well as some sort of NFL game. And yeah, there was thousands and thousands of people kind of uh, trying to get to and from by the tube, um, which is mildly uncomfortable. The tube's not great at the best of times. uh, But (laughs) yeah, no, it's, it's a big show even even here. So, Richard, uh, we're not here to talk about basketball, although we could. We could. Uh, we're not here to talk about basketball. Rather, we're here to talk about this brand, this brand, Studio Underdog, Concede from Your Brain, um, and 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 not out of nowhere, right? So you, you've got a background in you've got a background in design. You're you're formerly a product designer. Uh, I understand that you you have a history working with watches and with probably one of my favorite companies or brands of all time, Braun, uh, which I think is really exciting. Tell us about your background. Tell us how you got into product design. Yeah, so I studied product design. That's what I did at, at university. Um, absolutely loved it. Originally, I, I didn't know that that's what I wanted to study. I was I was initially thought I wanted to do architecture for a good few years and then I went and did a, a week's work experience in an architecture firm and and realized you know within that week okay this is not what I want to do um, and found myself doing product design instead which I absolutely loved um, so then I took that degree and was more or less trying to get the first job that would have me uh, in London that's where I wanted to go that was the next step try and get my foot in the door of, uh, of London um, so I was applying to loads and loads of different jobs um, and design related jobs. And the, the first job that I was able to get um, 
was one that was for a watch distribution company who kind of licensed and worked with a number of sort of watch uh, watch brands. So I, you know, went to the interview. Didn't really have much of a a knowledge of the industry. I I didn't really. I don't think I owned a watch. I borrowed my dad's watch to the interview. Um, got the job. Um, but you got one though. You you were wearing a watch. I was. Oh, I that, had that to exactly. It. Yeah, yeah. I think what, it was. What, uh, can we ask what you were wearing? I think it was uh, Vitorinox. I think is that how you say it? Vitorinox. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, yeah like a, um, like a Swiss Army watch. Yeah, that'll play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's one of those. Uh, who knows? We'll, we'll never know if that if that helped me get the job or not. But I like to think it probably played its part. Um, we'll say it. But did. that's that's where I kind of started, and that's where I sort of started to discover, you know, the watch industry. Um, it wasn't something I was aware of before, and as soon as I kind of fell into it, just kind of you know fell head head over heels. Um, just found it so interesting, so I started designing. Kind of... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what kind of watches were you were you working on? So at the start, it was very uh, uh, very bottom rung of the ladder. I was designing anything from Pepper Pig watches. Minions watches. Yes. I think a Minions watch was one of the first watches that I did, but I can't for the life of me remember which one because I wish, I wish I could, so I could just you know buy it and have that as you know. This was my first uh, first watch that I designed. Um, are, are Darth Vader. Like, uh, like, are these like hyper affordable quartz watches or? Yeah. So so the ones the the kind of the character watches, Pepper Pig, Minions, Star Wars stuff, etc. Most of it was kind of a, a, sort of it was an artwork role. So it was it was almost like you've got a template for a watch, super cheap plastic quartz watch, mostly aimed at kids, sort of ten pounds, you know, which is essentially ten dollars now. Um, you know, ten bucks. Um, <laughs> that hurt to we say. We talk about that all the time. We love it. <laughs> it's it's our favorite thing. Yeah, no, my trip to New York was was far more expensive than I could uh, ever have imagined. <laughs> uh, but yeah, moving swiftly on. Um, yeah, so it was mostly existing kind of uh, templates um, of of these cheap watches and applying uh, approved artworks from uh, these kind of licensees uh, such as you know Peppa Pig whatever so it was kind of a at first it was yeah I was I was happy to be doing it because it was my first job in London it was a design related role but I kind of got a little bit sick of it fairly quickly because it, it wasn't all that challenging but that was my that was that was my start really you really uh really clung to the Peppa Pig part of that you know you, you you talked about several others was there like something weird that happened with peppa pig or was that the first one you designed and it was just like that's what stuck with you like i'm i'm putting peppa pig <laughs> on a watch i think that's that's the one that i talk about because i think most most people from all countries seem to know peppa pig you know if i talk about like oh, sure pusheen or something i don't know if that's like a global thing have you heard of that Noticed that one exactly. So, so that it might not have kind of uh, it might not have resonated. So that's the that's the reason I kind of stick to the ones that that, that people seem to know. Okay. Um, so Star Wars as well. That was one that uh, th those ones were actually quite fun to work on. I've I've still got a couple of samples of a, a Yoda watch and a Darth Vader watch that I I designed probably five or six years ago. So. 
And and I actually I think Peppa Pig the artwork in Peppa Pig lends itself particularly well to a two dimensional watch much like like South Park right Peppa Pig is that very two dimensional I can actually see like a, a, a see yourself wearing Peppa Pig watches. I could yeah I'd wear a Peppa Pig there's watch a whole line <laughs> uh, or so are you originally from London or was London like go to the big city go to university get a job in in London kind of thing. Yeah, the the latter. I mean, so I only moved to the UK when I was twelve, um, and then I was came uh, to went to secondary school um, in in Liverpool. So London for me was yeah, it was it was just it was something else. It was kind of you know life in the big city. It was also when I finished finished uni, I studied in Nottingham. Um, I kind of I didn't really know where I should be going. Home was Liverpool but it never really felt like home because I wasn't really brought up there so I was kind of yeah kind of trying to figure out where I wanted to be and London you know just to start a career is there's lots of opportunities it's an exciting city and one of the most important things it's just where all my mates were as well um Mm -hmm. so yeah there was where are you from originally then so I, I was brought up in uh, Southeast Asia in uh, on the islands of Borneo, a country called Brunei. It's uh, yeah, yeah. My dad. So my basically my dad uh, specialised in tropical medicine. So kind of was brought up in some some weird and wonderful places. But yeah, coming to the UK was a, a bit of a culture shock uh, from there. But no, I uh, absolutely love my my time there. You said tropical medicine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's like like the application of medicine in the tropics. Yeah, exactly. So so okay. so for the first four years, for example, so from zero to four, I was in um, in West Africa again with my dad's job, and then from four till twelve um, in Brunei, and then when I went off to to uni, my parents moved back out to uh, to Gabon in West Africa which meant any sort of summer holiday or Christmas holiday or any of the holidays during during the uni term, you know, I'd, I'd go back and, and see my parents, which was pretty much just a, an awesome, awesome holiday uh, for me and my brother. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fishing, um, a lot of relaxing. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Boats, boats and beaches. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Can we talk a little bit, a, a little bit briefly? You don't have to talk much about it, but can we talk a little bit about your time at Braun? Because yeah, I, I think sure. anybody who knows design, design, particularly 20th century design, is familiar with Braun and Dieter Rams and, you, you know, what that company means for modern design. Mm-hmm. Braun obviously has moved on from the times where it was sort of the king of you know, Bauhaus design, um, it's a different world, but, but still, I assume those, those aspects of the culture are still there. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it's funny because now, now when I talk about Braun or Brown, the first thing I often say is, you know, when people, if people don't know it straight away, then I'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's the Shaver brand. And they go, oh yeah, you know, I, I know it, but you're right. It's, it's, it's a brand that's over a hundred years old now. Um, and has yeah pretty a pretty incredible history uh, design history as you said sort of Dieter Rams kind of pioneered the Bauhaus movement and and brought out some some yeah pretty iconic products 
uh, for like Braun. the iPhone calculator, for instance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's based <laughs> off an old. I think that it's the ET sixty six, some sort of you know calculator that was introduced in I think either the fifties or sixties. So uh, I think even the the clock as well that was that was based off um, one of the original sort of clocks that was designed by Dietrich Lubes, who was a guy that yeah throughout the sixties and I think up until the eighties. Was responsible for the watches and clocks under 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 Brown, working with with Dieter Rams, and for one of the projects that I was working on when I was there, he kind of came back. To, we we planned to introduce, uh, reintroduce, or reissue some of the watches that that he designed um, in the late eighties, um, and then as a kind of continuation on for for that project, we worked on like an evolution watch where. You know the original watches that he designed in in the 80s. They were sort of you know 32 mil case size because that was the style, that was the fashion. Even reintroducing those now, they're kind of quirky and cool. But we worked on on a project together uh, to sort of yeah bring out an evolution watch, which was sort of more designed for you know the modern wear. It was I think 39 or 40 mil. But that was a really fun project because it was this you know, obviously generational gap in terms of, uh, you know, not only design practices, but, you know, even language, you know, as my German is, is limited. I say limited, I mean, non-existent. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, his, his English wasn't so great. So it was a lot of kind of communicating very much, you know, via sketch. And he'd send me these technical drawings, which, you know, what I do when I'm building a watch is I do it on my computer I use CAD computer-aided design to you know to build it out he was essentially kind of producing the finished product but just via you know via hand and it was yeah it's kind of a felt like a, a bit of a lost art and yeah it was, it was a super cool uh, super cool project now did I did I so so you're very polite as we would expect from the English uh, did I mispronounce Braun and did I hear you very subtly correct me on my pronunciation? Not really. It's sort of, the, so the, the German <laughs> I, I pronunciation, the German pronunciation is Brown. Uh, Brown but okay. in English or it's, you know, most people say Braun, but the thing is even Braun or Brown haven't necessarily made up their mind because you look at adverts for the you know, for the English market, either the UK market or the American market. And it's a 50-50 split, whether in the advert they say brawn or whether they say brown. So they don't even know. Um, so yeah, absolutely not correcting you. It's uh, half the time I just kind of flick between between the two. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, they just want you to know how it's spelled. Yeah that's, yeah, that's it. So you can Google it. F fair enough. I'll, I'm going to stick with brawn based so on you've, that. You've talked about a pretty pretty wide spectrum of design experience from I'm distilling it. I know you did more than this, but from like slapping Peppa Pig stickers on the dial of a watch and figuring out how to make it work to this really historic, really rich in culture Bauhaus design world. And now hearing that you have it, it shows in your watch designs and and I want to figure out where that transition occurred because you're in you're you're in this design career you're not I mean you're not nowhere you're doing some really cool stuff what 
causes you to pivot into launching your own brand? So the the biggest thing was, well, the biggest credit is, is probably just boredom, not with the work that I was doing, but the fact that lockdown hit, you know, restrictions were in place and I just suddenly had loads of time on my hands. So I kind of started working away on some side projects to, you know, to, to try and refine my design skill set uh, that weren't to do with my work directly it was just working on some projects in my free time and so that was kind of that's kind of where it all started and i think in terms of how it actually you know came to fruition it was possibly in part like a bit of a rebellion from uh some of the 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 brawn principles uh are kind of to simplify it is sort of it's quite minimalist um there's there's kind of almost rules that, that you follow to, to design a product. And it just means it's sometimes somewhat restricting. So for example, if you look at the, the entire kind of brawn assortment, the dials are either black or white, you know, color mm -hmm. didn't really necessarily kind of serve as a, as a function for the base color of the dial. So hence why it was And if you want a color, if you want a color, it's going to be yellow. Yeah, exactly. And it's just on, anywhere, just on the hand, just on the hand. It's yellow. It. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, never a yellow dial, for example. So I think right. that was almost my, God, my no. kind of rebellion. Um, so my, my rebellion in, in my free time was to go, all right, you know, first thing to do, colorful dials. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what I say. Kind of the start of Studio Underdog was, was in part a rebellion uh, <laughs> uh, from that, really. <laughs> Well, but that's so. So there's two things. One, there's the idea, right, or or the feeling, right? What you're describing is a is an emotion, right? Rebellion's actually uh, two parts, right? One is is an emotion, and and two is uh, the action. So so at some point you were feeling rebellious enough to take action. How do you make that decision, and what does that decision making process look like? In, in retrospect, obviously, because looking back, so you can tell the story however the hell you want, Richard, it's our damn show. So so you tell your story. How do you make the decision to, A, draw a watch, right, in the way you draw products, and, and B, say, let's turn this into metal? So the decision to actually get started was, you know, was an easy one because I was... As I said, it was it was just a project that I was doing in my free time, and I didn't have any sort of great grand ambitions for it. Originally, I kind of gave myself a brief of a project where the finish line was pretty much uploading some uh, some illustrations and some renders to a Facebook group uh, group called uh, Microbrand Watches. So that was that was the project. That was the brief I'd set myself and. So for a couple of weeks, I kind of worked worked on that, um, and it was it was it was it was just yeah a project to kill time during lockdown uh, whilst the pubs were shut. So as soon as I pressed kind of upload on that Facebook group, uploaded some images, kind of gave a list of, of specs. At that point, I had no intention to kind of bring a product to market, which I think really Did you really not. I yeah. mean, you, you went through this entire pro. Was that like your beta test of like, <laughs> would people buy this? Who knows? Maybe that's I'm a lot of effort, right? That's not that's not an insignificant. You know, you you can you can write off. Oh, I had a ton of time. We all had a ton of time. None of us did this. 
<laughs> who knows maybe that's just a, a way that I was kind of justifying it to myself because you know the idea of kind of bringing a brand or a product to market you know without even you know that in itself seems like a an impossible task so maybe this was just my sure. way of breaking it down but for me it, it very much felt like you know this was this was the project and to be honest I guess maybe a part of it was that was it was almost like it felt like a finish line because if it didn't get any comments or if if nobody really thought much about you know about the renders or the illustrations that would have been end of project um so i think i yeah that's that's the approach i took and that's the way i was thinking about it but fortunately um you know the kind of the community in the in this facebook group sort of you know, gave some some really awesome some really awesome feedback. Most of the comments were were really positive and it encouraged me to kind of go ahead and make samples. There was some you know really kind of constructive criticisms and some changes that I made based on on those you know Facebook comments that that were made. Um, so yeah, that was then kind of stage two was right. Let's let's get some samples made based on this. And, you know, fortunately, because of my experience, I had, you know, I had some connections, I had some contacts and I, I knew who I instantly who I wanted to work with um, because I, you know, I've met them. I've visited a number of factories in Switzerland in the Far East. So that was where I definitely had a, a head start compared to, you know, a lot of a lot of brands that are kind of trying to bring product to market, especially during a pandemic where, you know, even now, if you're trying to find a you know a supplier in in China, you can't go there. You can't meet them, which is is right. so important. So that was something that I, I was very fortunate uh, that I was able to do beforehand, um, which meant I was able to kind of kickstart uh, the sample process. And I had a relationship already with people that I trusted, and more importantly, they they you know they knew who I was, and it wasn't just a an email out of the blue asking you know asking for samples. It was. You know, they knew who I was, and unfortunately, they you know they were willing to work together. So that was the next phase, as it were. I kind of made samples based on on the kind of the specs, um, and again, feedback was good. So went on to the next step. So I very much kind of broke it down into into mini projects. So it didn't feel like this incredibly daunting challenge of of trying to bring a product to market. I think had I started out thinking that it, yeah, it would have, it would have shaped up very differently. I'd have made very different decisions. One of the huge things I kind of credit the success of Studio Underdog to is is the fact that when I was bringing it to market, I wasn't I wasn't thinking commercially. I wasn't thinking how can I bring a product to market that sells the most watches. Um, so that I think is is a huge kind of part of of the success because it you know it meant I wasn't steered in terms of any of my decisions, thinking is someone going to buy this? I think had I had I thought like that, I certainly wouldn't have ended up with a watermelon themed you know by Compact's chronograph. Yeah, right. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about the watch because I think that that's I, I think that's a good a good time to segue. Um, you you have a by by compacts you're based on a seagull movement 
um, it, which Andrew and I have have waxed poetic about that movement a, a number of times on this show. We're we're huge fans of it. The you know you know it's a swan neck regulator. I mean it, it's, it's also a, a beautiful movement. column wheel chronograph. It, it's a fantastic movement, uh, really underappreciated for what it is. And I think that uh, we see, uh, we've seen in the last three years, a, a number of brands starting to use it. Was that did so? A how how much did that decision play into the watch? Right? How much did the Seagull nineteen hundred one ST nineteen hundred one play into your design? decision making because it's a huge part designing a chronograph is not like designing a three-hander you can design a three-hander with without knowing what your movement is you cannot yeah. design yeah, a chronograph throw one in yeah uh unless, unless you know what your chronograph unless you know what your movement is you've got to know uh, ahead of time or, or at least have a pretty good idea yeah it's it, it's actually kind of one of the first decisions that you you have to make if you know unless you're you have the luxury of you know having a a manufacturer that's going to make a movement for you. The first thing, you right, know, one sure. of the first steps that you have to, to take is, is kind of selecting a movement. I remember in a podcast that, that Mike France was on, uh, I think a few years ago, he said when they started um, with their watch brands, you know, with Christopher Ward, they didn't, they didn't have that much experience initially. So they kind of worked with their design team, worked on a few watches, and they were creating all these kind of, you know, they started with the dial in terms of the aesthetic and they were creating all these cool functions, right? This is where the power reserve is going to go. This is where, you know, the sub-second is going to go. This is, you know, and and then when it came to, all right, where's where can we get a movement that does that? Oh, it, it doesn't exist. Oh, it's going to it cost. It doesn't exist. Right? It's going to cost X, you know, <laughs> X hundreds of thousands, if not millions to actually get it made in years and years. So, so the, you know, the, the process really has to kind of start with the selection of the, of the movement. Um, and as you said, there was a, it's a movement that sort of is, is quite widely appreciated among enthusiasts. And by, by this point, you know, I, I was an enthusiast and it was something that I thought was, you know, a, a great starting point because, you know, A, to the end consumer, but also to me, it's, it's, it's affordable, it's doable. Um, and it's it's a, a movement it's accessible with a, too. I mean, incredible it's, it's, history. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's yeah, a killer it's choice. Accessible. That it's, was one of my know, points. I think that the no that that's okay. That happens. So we've got a little bit of just I would say just a little bit of delay because of Zoom. Thank you, thank you, Zoom for for giving us the ability to talk. But just a touch of delay. Um, the the. For me, I think the cool thing about the Seagull, the ST1901 in particular, is that it's it's still extremely affordable. So if you compare that to, say, a 7750, which is a little mm. bit different animal, obviously, um, and, and Swiss made and yada, yada, yada. Um, but but if you compare the you, you know the options from ETA or, or Valjoux or, or whatever... Um, the ST1901 is impossibly affordable, like the, impossibly affordable because of the way it's made, where it's made, um, the, the marketing efforts, AKA nil, um, you, you know, that, that movement does a thing in a, it does a thing in a way that really doesn't exist. A 1901, for instance, costs just a few dollars more than a Seiko Mecha Quartz. Um, mm. meanwhile, you've got a column wheel chronograph with 
you know, at least in your instance, a swan neck regulator. I mean, that's an incre- that's a horological, a horological mechanical movement that is important and beautiful and gorgeous. So yeah, I, I think it's a great choice. And there's nothing that even comes remotely, yeah, remotely close, you know, close to it in terms of, of price. And and as you as so as 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 I interrupted you, as you're about to say, it's got that history. It's got that kind of you know that extra little bit of of sort of where it's history it's in it, and, and that's part of the storytelling of it as well yeah so we start with the 1901 that was a decision that you made early on i mean th- this isn't a watch that you just drew a dial i mean you you started with a chronograph that was that was your choice i'm going to do a chronograph and i'm going to base it on a 1901 yeah and then what <laughs> and then what yeah great great question <laughs> Then it was, I guess that's where the kind of, that's where I started with the the design challenges that I kind of put upon myself. So I knew I wanted to use colour because that was a restriction that I had uh, with the kind of the watches that I was was working on for, for my job. Um, and I also just liked the aesthetic of, of a big eye chrono. So that's kind of where I started. And because I was using quite vibrant colours that, with the two-layer dial, with the the big eye, quite contrasting. It was it cre- it creates quite a, a a weight to one side of the dial, and then I was working with different sort of working with the text to to kind of try and offset that and, and rebalance the dial, and that's where I kind of was moving the the logo around with some of the the text at the twelve o'clock position. And I kind of I split the the text um, between the chrono hands, which was something initially that I was doing purely to balance to try and aesthetically balance out that dial, and it kind of worked out in such a way that it sort of all clicked into position. Where the fact that because I'd done that, it meant the chrono hands went at twelve, sort of passed seamlessly through the text without kind of interrupting it or cutting the logo in half. Um, right. Yeah, it kind of just clicked into place. And that was sort of, that was kind of the fun of the, you know, the design process. And, and that was the challenge that uh, at that point, you know, I felt like I'd overcome and, and and hence why I was kind of happy to to share the project. And that's, that's I think, you know, also been one of the, the things that, that, that people quite enjoyed. Did you find, so so you, you eventually finalize your design, you, you, you go live, you're, you're, in existing communities, uh, how quick was the was the reception? Because for, for us, from my perspective here in the Pacific Northwest, United States, uh, it's like Studio Underdog came out of nowhere. We, we didn't know about him one month, and then the next month, it was like Studio Underdog's a major player in the enthusiast microbrand watch scene. Did it feel that way from the London offices of Studio Underdog, aka your bedroom? <laughs> so at the start it was it's yeah it's difficult to kind of pinpoint exactly when you know if there was a flip a switch that flipped that it sort of everybody suddenly knew about the brand i think it's it's obviously happened quite quickly and you know i only launched the brand in, in march of last year that's when I, I went you know started the the crowdfunding campaign and that's that's you know what what helped to bring the products to market um you know, when I was starting with that, when I was starting with that, people were obviously writing great comments on on my Facebook and 
was sharing some stuff on Instagram and people were saying, this is great. But, you know, whether anyone's actually going to put their hard earned cash into to backing a project, you never know until until you sort of you go live. So, yeah, that until was the money's the, in the bank account. Right. And exactly. Um, so so that was, you know, the, the day I went live, that that was, a you know, a lot of fun. I kind of hit my goal quite quickly um, and I was like, OK, you know, shit, this is this is really really happening now and I was excited because it was really <laughs> happening but I was also I was I was nervous this was a level of responsibility now people were putting their trust in me um, and now you had a bucket load of other people's money <laughs> exactly it's 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 a responsibility um, but no that was yeah I, I'm so obviously I'm so glad I, I did do that and uh, you know I think after kind of fulfilled quite a, a few batches now as it were that was the way I've sort of been operating uh, where I've been kind of ordering as many watches as I could and then making them available and rinse and repeat um, so now people have seen that you know my um, watches are, are getting out there and um, yeah it's, it's well, just been let, great let's talk about the watch and I'm going to go kind of I'm going to go kind of piece by piece we've talked about the big eye chronograph by compacts design uh, split text on the dial so we've talked about those things. Uh, let's go to the next thing that really catches my eye, which is that crystal. Tell me about the crystal. So the the crystal is, so it's a sapphire crystal, uh, double domed. I kind of wanted to have that sort of like a vintage aesthetic. So that was kind of the kind of one of, one of the challenges again, or one of the de design goals that I, I set myself was I wanted it to, to look you know, referencing sort of vintage chronos from the 60s. So that's why I chose this, yeah, this double domed box style sapphire um, and as well as kind of the, the case shape. And one of the reasons that I, I keep the straps quite subtle in their color, they're usually sort of, uh, you know, fairly monotone is because I almost want the watch from any other, any other angle other than the front to look like a watch from the 60s and then when you see it right. from the mm -hmm. front that modern dial is is, is super punchy um did did you yeah. ever consider a uh, a sapphire crystal yeah it is uh, it is sapphire or excuse me excuse me did you ever consider an acrylic crystal um i considered it yeah um but i decided to go with sapphire i can't remember why i die because it's an easy decision it's, yeah, it's it's the right decision it seems it's like the right decision acrylic yeah. would distort the color like the the pop and the vibrance of a vibrancy yeah you get that really laser yeah yeah it, it I, seems I, like it would be disruptive to I, the i want this color. sapphire to be crystal personally because it's so much crystal that you know you're gonna bash it like <laughs> i want this crystal to be sapphire if There's i'm wearing this watch uh <laughs> I want it to be sapphire, so I'm gl I'm glad you did that. Um, talk to us about the pushers because the 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 pusher design here I think is perhaps the it's understated, but perhaps the most striking design detail of the watch. Once you get past the dials, once you get past the oh my fucking god, look at that pink dial. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk to us about the pushers. I mean, again, a, a lot of it was sort of referencing referencing watches that you know that I'd seen and that I'd appreciated, and and this sort of this juxtaposition between super old school tech, you know, a movement that was designed in yeah. the 40s, case shape that again was was referencing chronos from the 60s. Um, and I thought these pushes just kind of 
you know, aesthetically worked quite well, kind of didn't, didn't sort of draw the focus or the attention away from the dial, which is kind of what I wanted the, you know, the focus to be. Um, so it was, it was, again, it was just, it was part of the process. I've got sketches and I've got illustrations where I've, I've tried different um, pusher styles, but this was the one that I, I felt just, you know, just worked. I think I think rectangular pushers are are really underused, and I think part mm. of that is because of in, integration. You, you know, the round plunger style or whatever is is e- easy, right? Or or perhaps you know expected and Didn't common. Expected, yeah. I really like you, you, you know the so so. There's obviously the Speedmaster Moonwatch, of which I'm an owner, but then there's the Bulova Moonwatch, aka formerly known as mm. the Moonwatch, which has those rectangle and i think gosh that is such a uh, a modern but not modern like 2021 or 2022 modern but modern like 1960s modern disneyland yeah the, future we're, we're looking at 2025 right now <laughs> that's right modern in that design sense and and i think it's i think it's a great aesthetic for the watch you've done here mm, thank you Gen two. Let's talk about Gen two mm-hmm. because your Gen twos are just through pre order. You've you've closed your pre orders, I think, on everything. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the, at the moment, the kind of the the model that I've been following originally, originally, what I was doing was, as I said, I would order as much stock as I possibly could. I've not taken on any sort of uh, investors. Um, so after after the original campaign. I was just using then my own money to place as many orders as I could. I'd make them available via my website um, and then I'd sort of, I guess, rinse and repeat as it were. But the kind of the, the demand was um, was increasing faster than my production capacity. So what was happening is I'd make the products available and they'd sell out uh, quite quickly, which is obviously great, but it was leaving people quite rightly frustrated uh, where they you know they'd come on they'd be you know following the brand for a while wanting to you know wanting to get a watch wanting to support wanting to 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 play a part uh, in the growth of the brand and you know entering their credit card details uh -uh, sold out which is not fun for anyone so in September of this year so a couple of months ago I kind of changed the model where instead of having a certain number available I kind of took a step backwards and, and went more to the, I guess, the, the pre-order model where I set a window. So in September, there was a six hour window where people could place their order and then it would be mm. fulfilled, uh, you know, uh, up to sort of five months or so later, which has is, is worked quite well. People seem to be to be happy with that because at least they can kind of, you know, get the order in and, and it's not as frustrating as is you know seeing the the sold out sign so yeah that's kind of the the model that i'm that i'm following now six hours yeah so i you know i six hours felt like enough you know if yeah it felt like a good a good window um where anyone that was was excited enough or, or or wanting to to get their hands on one it was it was yeah six hours is plenty of time to to be you know, to, to, to place the order so that was <laughs> that's it beats the one it, minute it, if window. you if you yeah. if you're ready for it right if you're ready for it you know you want it and you're ready exactly and 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 i guess mm-hmm. the, the the people that i wanted to get 
get the watches were the people that on prior launches had been there on the launch, you know, I usually launch at three o'clock, so they'd been there at three o'clock, they've been there with their, you know, their cards, they kind of, they've done everything right. And then they, you know, just someone would get there before them and it would sell out. And that's, that's who I wanted to make sure was able to get the watches. So that's why six hours, you know, for, for anyone like that, or anyone that, you know, looks at their watch and it's four o'clock and they go, oh no, I've missed it, you know, but I desperately wanted it. Well, again, six hours kind of, you know, covers that. So why not, why not, uh, 12 hours or 24 hours or a week? Um, I could have done, but you know, six. So, so interestingly enough, actually I did, um, uh, a collaboration piece earlier in the, earlier in the year, which was, uh, strawberries and cream, uh, themes, chrono. And that was, uh, I did it for a week. So it was essentially, yeah, it was essentially, I did a pre-order system for a week. And I can see from that, that, you know, the, the sales data from that week, day one, vast majority of the sales, you know, were done. Mm -hmm. So it was often kind of the enthusiast market. If they want a product, they'll, they'll pick it up on day one. You think maybe people might wait, you know, to the end, to the last day before pulling the trigger, but that's, yeah, that just doesn't happen. And it's, it's the same for, for Kickstarters. If you, if you look at kind of the, um, sales across if a Kickstarter, whether it does a week, two weeks, a month, you know, day one is always the, um, is always the kind of the share. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it kind of, it applied on, on a micro scale, um, to six hours as well. So, you know, hour one, vast majority of, of the people that, that want it, well, you know, within 10 minutes, I'd say even was, was the vast majority. And then, yeah, in the next few hours, people ha- had that time. Um, so, yeah. And you just chum the water and, you know, everyone shows up and gets the feeding frenzy done. And then. And, and then the over. hard work and then the hard work begins. Yeah, yeah that's when I have to uh, start making watches. So, yeah, the, the the one in September was was brilliant because it, it kind of it really gave me a, an understanding as to how many people, you know, were, were really wanting a watch before it was I'd have a certain quantity and and that would go and I never really knew the level of demand whereas this kind of gave me uh, gave me an insight which which was great so your colors are all to a watch named after your watches are all named to a watch after a color uh you don't have a there's no obvious model name now with your gen 2 that you've just wrapped up or that you've wrapped up pre-orders on now um they're referred to as the color and and Gen 2. At this point, we're talking about all essentially the same watch. Um, I, I assume, and, and maybe I shouldn't, but I assume that at some point you are probably thinking about other watches because you're a designer and you're going to, you, your brain's going to go in different directions. Two questions, two-parter. A, um, does that naming convention feel restrictive now that you've, that you've, decided and it's those decisions have been made and two moving down the road what do you do with that so so for the naming um what do you mean well well so like just if you were to make a field watch what do you name that watch yeah i'll I'll pull because it can't just be your watermelon anymore because watermelon is your watermelon chronograph or or perhaps 
Pumpkin. Mm-hmm. Pumpkin is a bicompax SD1901 big eye chronograph. Uh, but but you've not called it that. You've called it pumpkin. So uh, does does that naming convention in and of itself seem limiting to you? And and perhaps not. I can see you you're you're not quite offended at the question. But there's no, a hint no. of offense. No, there's there's not. No, I'm I'm sort of laughing because you know the, the truth is, uh, you know, a lot of other watch brands will will have that knowledge. You know, future proofing their their product assortment, and it's probably why. Many watch watches have ridiculous codes uh, for for their right. names in, instead of <laughs> instead of names. But for me, <laughs> for me, when I when I started, I you know I I wasn't trying to future proof the brand. I wasn't I wasn't thinking uh, you know years ahead. I was I was figuring out what I might do tomorrow. So yeah, I ha- hadn't actually crossed my mind uh, before I'd I'd uh, launched a, a watch, but. I'm sure I'll, I'll find some solution. Um, You'll figure it out. You're going to have a whole pumpkin line of, of different <laughs> varieties of pumpkin. You're going to have, you know, a gourd. Exactly. That's sort of my, my approach is very much, uh, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out as I go. I think that's, uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's the easiest way I kind of manage things rather than getting too, uh, too ahead of myself or wrapped up. It seems to be working. I want to I want to touch on something a little I mean definitely related. One of the ways that we became aware of the brand was via Mike France with respect to the UK-based watchmaking world community. I'm not really sure how to define that community. Uh I I know that it exists, uh, and I forget the name of it. I should have looked it up before I decided to talk about this. Um, the Alliance. You know it. Can yeah. You, yeah, the Alliance. Can you talk to me about that? Talk to me about the value that that's added to you. And, I mean, Mike talked about it with a lot of pride, like a lot of excitement. This is a revitalization of British watchmaking. And I, I want to hear your perspective as a newcomer to the industry, as a newcomer to the Alliance, and, yeah. and just what that means to you. So yeah, that's I'm, I'm glad you've asked that. So when I was starting out, you know, nobody knew who or what Studio Underdog was. So of course, the people that I wanted to reach out to were the people that I respected, the people that you know were doing or had done it. You know, had brought you know well watch brands had brought products to market, and I wanted to you know to learn off off those people. So I sent messages to to various watch brands. I sent um, uh, you know message, messages to to Nicholas from Fears Watches, Mike from from Christopher Ward, and I was you know just just trying to get some trying to get some some either feedback or some um, some advice. I would take you know a, a one word email reply would have would have made my day. But I was expecting, I'd expect hostility or I'd expect, you know, in any other market, if a potential competitor or, or even a non-existent uh, competitor is sending you emails, I think a lot of the time they wouldn't really expect a response. But it was the total opposite. Um, you know, mm-hmm. any yeah. question I had... I was getting sort of a wealth of advice, you know, it would be, you know, I would have, I was, uh, you know, able to 
to meet uh, you know uh, Mike France and he was we we spoke openly about what Christopher Ward was doing what I was planning on doing um, and I think that it really surprised me and it was a case where because British watchmaking as, as a whole um, is such a small little pocket a small little market every sort of British watch brand is almost under the understanding that a rising tide lifts all boats every you know if we if it's almost if we all kind of work together it's you know everyone succeeds it's not it doesn't feel like a competition or that we're competing so that was something that you know that that really surprised me and i think that's what you know the alliance has been great for it's it's sort of a, a network where people are able to ask questions and now it also means when when uh, brands are coming to me or i get you know students who are studying product design they're coming to me and asking questions i'm quite keen to you know to share to share my you know what i've learned in the last few years um, which is kind of a knock-on effect of that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it seems to be something that, that we're working all to, together towards, and it's something that I'm interested in as well. British, you know, watchmaking in the UK is, is yeah, it's, it's such a small market, and I'm, even as a little brand, I'm kind of trying to take the steps to, to play my small, small role. So that's what, you know, you've referred to the Generation 2. That's Gen, Gen 2 models now. They're assembled in the UK, and we we work with a British uh, strap maker, a guy called the Strap Tailor. So he makes all our straps. Um, he's a you know again a British brand. So I'm kind of doing my small things uh, to, to to you know to, to try and play my part in in yeah in in, in the growth of, of British horology. Not not developing a British movement just yet. I'll leave that to to Roger Smith. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that that sense of community and collaboration has been something that has been that that I've seen just permeate throughout this small brand industry and it is so cool and I think windup was really one of the coolest examples that I really got to see that in person because we talk to brand owners all the time and they're like oh yeah you know I talked to this person they helped talk to this person they helped and you never really can tell if it's just paying lip service, if it's like, oh, like, oh, I know this guy and they're cool and we're friends and that means that I'm cool. Or if there's like really that collaborative environment. And when I when I saw all these people together at Windup, not just friendly, but truly in support of one another, it it was it was a really cool thing that's that's I mean, spanning the globe, evidently, in in watchmaking and in this small brand industry, and I'm I'm I don't know, I'm just I'm just I may be waxing poetic on it because it's it's a really cool thing to see in an industry that really ought to be really competitive, uh, and it's just not. It's really collaborative, and yeah. I'm glad that you got to experience that and and be a part of that and are and are paying it back now in the in the ways that you've talked about and and that's that's awesome. Yeah, and that's you know again, I guess that's that's not necessarily just uh, restricted kind of to you know to British horology. I mean, even at Wind Up, you know, I went and I picked up a watch from a different brand. You know, I I bought a watch and I had a couple of brand brand owners come to me and 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 buy you know one of my watches. So it's also 
you know, I like to think it's probably not 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 necessarily a case that we're buying them to kind of be comparing and contrasting. It's because we're genuinely interested. I think that's one of the great things about micro brands, uh, which I consider myself one, is the fact that often the owners behind them are enthusiasts themselves, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is something that that again is is quite unique in terms of. Yeah, it's quite unique to that, you know, that microbrand market. And if you if you message a microbrand on Instagram, you're more than likely going to get the person replying is the person that designed the watch, developed the watch, sourced the you know, sourced the components, etc. Which again is is quite a quite a novelty, and, and I think that's something that's super cool. So yeah, there's my uh, picked up uh, one of the brew watches, that, which uh, that, I've been I've admired for a, for a long right time. That's such a good watch. That's such a good watch, and, and and I think in some ways you've tapped in on some of the same, um, the same hype. I don't I don't mean that word pejoratively, pejoratively the at all. The same feel. The the same feel as you, you know, John showed up a, a handful of years ago, uh, and and I think his uh, first few releases were incredibly cool and super different. It took him a couple generations to kind of figure out, um, you, you know, this is the actual. This is actually what brew is. Um, You're I, talking about brew watches. He he showed us a brew watch that he yes, acquired at Wyndham. Yeah, sorry, that's that's good, Andrew. We, we I, I I forget sometimes that people can't see us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's best that, that they don't. <laughs> it feels like you've tapped into some of that that same you you know like what is this? Why is this in front of me? And holy shit, where can I get one? Right? Yeah, that um, same like whimsy and fun simultaneously with something that's cool as shit. That it's that really delicate balance that's been yeah. struck. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. uh, percent. And that was that was, um, you know, I credit I credit Jonathan a lot actually because again before I'd even started the brand, it was you know when Clubhouse was all the rage. You know, remember that? Yeah, app? right. Yeah. Mid twenty twenty. Hundred percent. So that was that was before <laughs> I'd even that was before I'd even started uh, started the brand, and he was an inspiration really because. When I sort of decided that I was wanting to bring this, you know, this this product to market, I could look at his products and say, right, look, this is, you know, what he's doing is a niche within a niche, and it's successful. What, you know, my ambition is also to do that. It's something quite quirky. It's a niche, niche within a niche. So again, any time I saw him being on Clubhouse talking, I'd tune in and I'd listen to him and I'd be, you know, be learning, and occasionally I'd, you know, raise the courage to lift your hand i think that's what you had to do in clubhouse and you could be invited in to you know to to talk and and have your word so again you know he he gave me the time of day before i'd even launched and i was talking about what i was doing and he was giving me advice and and again he's you know and he still he still does so which is which is awesome so yeah just a a kind of final point on that kind of collaborative uh you know sense in in this industry well, and I think someone like Jonathan, and we've talked a lot about him today, Mike France, th- these are two guys uh, that in, in some ways define define this industry, right? They're both uh, heads of incredibly successful companies, much different companies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cr- companies that are different in terms of their trajectories, their their, their experience and backgrounds, and, and, and in terms of the watches they create. Um, but nonetheless, I think that those two people, for me, probably... Um, and there's a couple other brands that I throw into this conversation as well. But but when I think about personalities, it's those two people that I think really define what this community is. You know, 
these are people with their own success and their own reasons to not give a shit about anybody else. And yet they're both so gracious and, uh, so, um, magnanimous and humble in ways that they probably shouldn't be humble, uh, or, or that you might not expect them to be humble. And, and, and that is in some way, I, I think w- the personality that the industry sort of, uh, uh, idolizes, right. It's these people that will talk to you, you know, talk to you about what, what it is, whether it's watches or, or life, you know, your, your, your job, or, you know, we've had conversations with Mike, off off the air and it's like this guy is so you want to be my dad yeah <laughs> michael you adopt me because uh you, you know you know here's this guy who's a, a serious businessman running a serious business and he just has time and is interested and curious and and lovely so i i'm glad that we got to john too because mm-hmm. I, I really do think those guys uh are, are amazing and for us i know they've both been huge in what we're doing here with 40 and 20 and it's been uh, you know, a mm-hmm. long time now that we've known those guys and still today, you know, I, I see Mike and it's like, Hey, when are we going to get coffee? You know? Uh, yeah, that is, that is this environment. And, and I think you guys have something special in the UK as well. Um, the, the Alliance and, and whatever, but still just this burgeoning community that is maybe not, maybe not the most obvious place for, such a fantastic threat you know the companies that i think of from the uk you you know off the top of my head uh uh, obviously you can just start with christopher ward if if you want to but we've got you we've got nick um and and a handful of others uh it's just a crazy cool uh environment for for interesting things to be happening it's and it's really ripe too uh british watchmaking has a very long and and fascinating and exciting history and to see it, its revitalization is cool and it's not revitalization in the way of zombie brands it's revitalization in the way of the idea of british watchmaking and this independent spirit and this exciting spirit and you being a part of it is really cool for sure for sure and you know and on that as well in terms of kind of you know the development of british horology the the Christopher Ward sort of latest release there, Bel Canto, which no doubt you guys have, uh, have spoken about. Um, is... We were one of the first, we, we were amongst the first people to put hands I, on that I, watch. I watched, I'm happy to I say. watched Mike France open up his trench coat and expose it to me. <laughs> yeah, so you guys no got cameras. the inside scoop. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't even have that luxury. So, you know, you guys. You were bogged down. You were, you, you were, were otherwise engaged. <laughs> But that you know that's that's a watch that that really is kind of that that shows that that is is hugely motivating you know for me seeing a, a British brand fine they've got fifteen years experience on me so you know I'm I, I'm under no uh, illusions that, that I'm not going to be able to to uh, sort of emulate anything so quite close to that. Next. Exactly, you know, uh, you know that seems somewhat more achievable when when compared to to what they've done with the Valcanto. But yeah, in terms of kind of British horology, steps are already happening. I think that's that's something that's even even that watch alone is 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 going to be pushing um, pushing thing pushing the envelope forward, as it were. So, Richard, in your in your uh, social media and on your website, you haven't you you, you haven't been. Uh, 
uh, all too uh, uh, expressive about what's coming next for you. And so I assume that there, uh, uh, there is a certain amount of secrecy still at this stage of the game. But if, if you would, if you would humor us, give us a sneak peek or a tease or, or even, even some smile. philosophies. Yeah, there's a smile. There's a big smile. There's a, there's a big smile there's some yeah no, what, what, do we, what do we got to look for there's a few to? projects there's a, there's a couple of projects but the one that i'm sort of most excited about is uh, is a field watch that i've been developing um which yeah i think is i'm excited about i i can see because i think you meant when it, yeah you mentioned a field watch and i uh yeah I, I was i was laughing about that but um yeah field watches is, is is the next thing on the agenda originally i was planning on launching it at uh wind up because um, I'm, to be honest, I'm I'm pretty much there with the development of it, and I'm I'm really excited to launch it. But sometimes I know that I need to kind of slow down, pace myself. I want to make sure that I've fulfilled my outstanding orders. There's people that pre-ordered and are waiting for a watch. I want to make sure that they get a watch, they're happy uh, before I start releasing newness. Um, are we yeah. are we talking about like Dirty Dozen meets peanut butter and jelly? What what do we, what we give give us a teaser here? <laughs> oh, that's that's a great idea. I'll have to start working on that actually. Um, we, we're no. all also open to collaborative uh, releases. You can pay you can pay us for that one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, uh, yeah I actually do really like that. Um, so <laughs> so the field watch uh, I think is really so I've obviously had a, a really a successful chronograph introduction. And, you know, people are aware of the Studio Underdog brand, but I don't think, you know, everyone's kind of vision as to what ne- what's next is probably slightly different. I'm sure some people just think that, okay, Studio Underdog, Watermelon Man, he just puts watermelon colors on a watch. That's his, that's his thing. Whereas I think there's it's kind of, of watches, yeah. which, you know, which is what I've, I've done currently, but I think there's a lot more to the brand uh, than that. I think the way I kind of, thinking about it is for the Corona range, you know, the innovation that I I brought to it was the use of color and the use of, you know, uh, playfulness on the dial and and working with the text elements, etc. So it was kind of the innovation was by design uh, and and color. And I kind of want to do something slightly different for the field watch where there's innovation. Don't get me wrong. Color is always going to be an important thing for Studio Underdog, but there's innovation in different ways. Um, sounds a little bit abstract, but I think this is, yeah, this is kind of going to cement, you know, what the DNA of the brand is and hopefully is, is kind of my, my second album as it were. Um, and I, you know, if, if, you know, if we're talking about second albums, successful second album is always, is something that doesn't sound like the first album. Um, mm-hmm. so, right. Yeah, so it's it's something that uh, again I'm I'm super in, uh, excited to launch. I'm really happy with it. Um, so yeah, just a, a little bit more time. I think probably Q2, Q3. Yeah, Q2 next year um, is is what I'm looking at now. I have a final question. How do you, as a one man show, who is kind of the definition of pushing boundaries tempering that how are you alone looking at your designs and keeping them from going too far like i mean i know i there must be some bizarro shit 
that is saved as an idea on your computer. Like things that even you were like, nah, that's just not going to work. What are you using as your litmus test for like, this is palatable. This is reasonable. And and how are you kind of keeping yourself in that, in, in that safe space of I'm, I'm going to push, push the envelope a little bit without like just throwing that thing off the table. So it's a good question. So it's kind of tough. So one thing that's challenging being a one man band is, yeah, is, is don't necessarily have people to, I don't have a team to bounce ideas off. So I'm just working away. Yeah, you, don't and, have, you have nobody to say, no, 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 Richard, that's a terrible idea. No, that's yeah, exactly. Like, I like it. I like the innovation. I appreciate the, the, the you know, the, the ambition, but no, that's stupid. But again, do you know what? If, if I did have someone, you know, saying that, again, people would have looked at a watermelon bean chronograph and gone, come on, man, you've got to, if you want to sell watches, you can't be doing that. So, so, so maybe that's or your a, bizarro markers on your chocolate chips. Like exactly. Like, exactly. So, okay. so, so maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing. And, and, and again, sort of my, my limitation to some extent, again, because it's a one man band, I'm doing the design. I'm also doing the product development and, you know, working with suppliers to get that made. If I do a design that is so incredibly bonkers that it's impossible to manufacture, well, I'm the one that's going to have to deal with that challenge. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's always that that, and you know that that again part of my background in terms of sort of my product design and the degree I worked on was was an engineering degree. I'm always thinking about fit for manufacture. So so that's something where I'm some you know I sometimes limit myself in terms of what's actually achievable. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of, one thing that I'm, I am, I'll admit that I'm, I'm struggling with now is when I started, the focus was, was the design, was the, you know, was the product design and then kind of bringing it to market was the, the part that I just, you know, was the next step and I have to do. Now I'm sort of running a business. I've got no experience running a business. And now I have to try and figure all that out. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm doing, you so know. So we're going to see safer designs. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. the name <laughs> of running a business. <laughs> no, my challenge, my, the biggest challenge is, is making sure that I dedicate the time to what makes my brand successful, which is the design. Because at the moment, yeah. it can, I can lose a day by looking at, you know, accounts, trying to figure out bookkeeping, looking at VAT returns. Right. And my our head just wants to explode. And, and you know, what would be best for the brand is if I'm just designing, which is, is you know, so I need to always keep that uh, on the back of my mind. <laughs> you need a business guy is what you need. I need, you a, need a business, business guy. dude. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that I, I'm, I'm really excited. So, so tell us, so tell us right now where we can find studio underdog and because pre-orders are closed, tell people when the next opportunity they might have to be able to take part in this. So, um, studio underdog, so underdog.com, uh, the O in dog is a, is a is zero. A, yeah. Is a zero, right? Yeah. So underdog.com, um, or just type in, I guess, I think watermelon watch. I think now that, that, shoots you to to studio underdog which that'll is get great you so that that'll get you there um yeah instagram facebook all the same stuff um and then in terms of the next kind of yeah the future availability i don't really know to be honest my my main focus at the moment is fulfilling outstanding orders um i've 
I've kind of, from the orders that I placed, I've over-ordered, so I will have stock available. So I'd say probably sort of uh, April time, possibly. But the best thing to do is, you know, again, I'm, as is quite evident, I'm figuring it out as I go. Um, but the best thing to do is, is is go onto my website, and I've I've got a link that um, to to sign up to get to get notified with with updates. So that's that's probably the best uh, the best thing to do if if anyone is interested in seeing what I'm doing in terms of being updated with newness, or or, or interested in in grabbing a restock in 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 one of the the short windows. Yeah, Richard, we're gonna move on to other things. And I always start with Andrew. Andrew, other things. What do you got? I have another thing, and it's it's a little bit of a of a weird other thing. Always, <laughs> always, other things are supposed to be weird. So it's something I've had for a really long time. No, and it's something I I really like. And and when I got it, I got it for a specific purpose. And the longer I've had it, mm. I've realized just the versatility. So it's from a company called Tactical Tailor. I know that company. Tactical Tailor is a Geardo, which is colloquialism for a gear weirdo. It's a Geardo aimed towards the tactical folks in the world manufacturer. And Military people buy Tactical Tailor. Or like real Geardo. Right, right. Military adjacent. Yeah. By way of their um, stylistic decisions. But also the functionality. Yeah, yeah. So I have this thing. It, it's called their Fight Light Admin Pouch Enhanced. And we've talked about kind of utility things before. You know, you had your like EDC, like hardened board card, with elastic yeah, yeah. straps. Yeah. This is really, really similar to that. And it is a, I need to get the dimensions. Five by eight by two inches deep pouch. It's a, it's a clutch. It's a it's a dude's clutch. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I need a dude's clutch. But the thing is, it doesn't have a strap to, that you can like wrap around your wrist. Uh, <laughs> nor nor does it have like a a, a weird gold uh, pin on it denoting the brand. Okay. Um. So I dig this thing. I got it while I was in the army, and I I got it for its very specific application there. And this is a five by eight by two inch deep pouch with a full zipper on three sides of the rectangle that opens up. It's got some uh, cord to keep it from opening up all the way. Mm -hmm. Elastic straps on the inside for which to hold your things like or elastic, like Molly webbing, but elastic to hold your things, a waterproof Velcro topped pouch for which to hold documents and that's it. It's very simple. One side has Does it have like a little like a notebook holder, like a right in the rain holder or something. It 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 has it has it has a little little yeah. pocket. It's a clutch, right? Yeah. And 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 the reason it's acceptable for me to have this clutch is because it is uh, made by a company called Tactical Tailor, and also because we don't care about rules. Exactly. So I when I got out of the army and I stopped having this on uh, a vest, I was like, well, I still want to use this thing because it costs seventy bucks. And it was really, really valuable to me while I was wearing it in its application. Since then, this has become like my uh, my my car emergency kit. Okay. It it goes 
in any car I get into when I'm going to be driving it for a prolonged period of time. It's small, right? I just grab it. I throw it in the little pocket in your, in your door panel. Sure. I keep my, I keep a pen in it. I keep a knife in it, a multi-tool, a window break thing, just like no, like little shit, double A batteries. It's got little, those elastic bands hold themselves well enough that you can put all the stupid things that you need that you don't think you need, right? It's got chapstick, pens, a window break, a seatbelt cutter, all those little things, like that, that little emergency kit that just like, yeah, just in case. And it takes up absolutely no space. So maybe this isn't the one for you because it is 70 bucks. But there will be a link to it in the show notes. It's no, well, hold on. I'm going to interrupt you because it's 70 bucks and it's worth 70 bucks. This is a super fucking cool thing yes. from a super cool company. There's so you, you could buy this thing, very similar thing, I'm guessing, from China, and it would be fine. And, and it would probably even be good. This is, is a really cool company made by really owned by really cool people and, and the, yes. this device is fantastic and it's a no bullshit thing this thing has been through the absolute ringer it's cordura it's got a like a bomb proof zipper made in I, the united states yep and i love this thing it, it is my clutch that goes with me in any car i'm ever in and i love it i and i, I would recommend that you you build your own little small emergency kit because emergencies don't happen when you want them to. And if you're not prepared, you're not prepared. And that's where I keep all my emergency shit. Because number one, I have all that stuff already in my truck. My wife does not have it in her car. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's an agenda here. <laughs> Rental cars don't have it. This is my, like, I'm going to throw it. I'm going to have it because I know that unless I'm in my car and unless I'm I'm living, like, the life that I live, like, whether it be, you know, call it whatever you will. Neuroses is probably what most people would call it. It doesn't exist outside of the little sphere of influence that I have. So I have my little pouch that I have all my things when I go places like if i have to have like additional documents like a passport or something that goes right in there i fucking love this thing yeah i like i i was so glad that i finally pulled it off of of my stuff and filled it with normal useful things it for, for those of you who are geardos it has uh Molly stripping and Velcro on the front. They use Malice clips, which is the Molly Alice combination mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, clips on the back for mounting. This thing is money and it was worth every penny. And I've gotten $70 and more of use out of this thing. Link in the show notes. Check be it there. out. And just look at Tactical Taylor stuff. If you are in any way a Geardo, uh, Tactical Taylor's got some good shit. And That's if you a are company. a Geardo, you are aware of Tactical Taylor. Richard Bentz, pronounced like Fence. <laughs> not Bonk. Not, not Bank. Not Bonk yeah. or Bank. Richard no. Bentz, other things. What do you got? Nice. Um, so I've thought long and hard about this. I've absolutely not just <laughs> looked around my desk. It's been weeks. To, uh, no, no, uh, yeah, no, oh, no, no. This it's is, been this weeks. This has You've been, been working weeks, on this. weeks in the mating. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so my other thing is as you can probably tell i'm sort of i'm not the most organized person Uh, yeah i'm british that's true uh but i'm also not the most organized person and i like many many people have 
drawers that are just filled with random stuff. You know, if I've got some Rubbish. batteries, I've got some batteries. Are they new? Are they dead? I don't know. They're going in the drawer. Who knows? You know, I've got <laughs> yeah. a pen. We'll yeah. know when we put them in the thing. Yeah. Exactly. There's only one way to find out. So, you know, you've got markers, you've got pens, you've got wires and cables. You stick them in the drawer, they're gone forever. <clears throat> you know, they just they just disappear into into the ether that, that is this drawer. So my you other thing... fight light admin pouch. My other thing <laughs> is, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, an admin pouch. It's a, oh. a, a desk div- drawer divider. I assume that's what you call it. And it's just, this one's a, a kind of a, a rigid felt uh, divider, pretty much in the exact dimensions of the drawer that I have, that separates, the, that kind of separates what is, you know, the drawer is originally just a single uh, cavity where everything gets jumbled together. It splits it into, let's see, one, two, eight different cavities that you can then organize stuff in. So I've got one that's full of pens, one that's full of batteries. Again, I still don't really know if the batteries are, are full or empty. But uh, yeah, that's my But other they're thing. in one place. They're in one place and I know where they are uh, and they don't disappear. You know, I can see them. You know, if I need a battery, I'll go, all right, I'm going to the, you know, the drawer that is now beautifully laid out and I'm picking up a battery. So that's that's my other thing. I guess they're called drawer dividers. I think they probably cost... Uh, a couple of quid on on Amazon. I gotta say, just looking at the divider you pulled out, it was very organized and it was deep too. You yeah. know what? I feel like desk dividers are usually thin, and I want it. I want give like, me give me something that I can mound. Give me the depth of <laughs> my drawer. <laughs> that was good. I need uh, a mountain of dead batteries. I don't need a fucking battery. All right, I've got another thing. It Do is, me. It is not a new thing. It is not a new thing. It is an old thing, much like yours, Andrew. It, it's not a thing I've had for a while. It's actually a, a new thing to me. I, this weekend, watched a movie with my kids, and it's an old movie. It is a movie from, I don't know, a long time ago. It, it's a movie from so long ago that Shia LaBeouf was a baby. Uh, and not a baby, but he was a teenager. It's a movie called Holes, and this is based Ooh. on a book that I read a long time ago. 2003 film. By Lewis Sacker, and the book is really good. Uh, and I recommend it. It's it's like I think you'd call this young adult fiction, which I'm yeah. not above. I'm I'm a young adult. Uh, so, but I watched this movie, and and I, I I don't know why, but I always suspected that this movie would be a letdown. You've never seen that because movie? the movie is so good, or because the book is so good. Excuse me. Uh, and I could not have been more wrong. So I am gonna I'm gonna say that this movie is very much in the vein of the Sandlot. Which is very much. I I think the Sandlot is like perhaps the defining movie of that genre, of that generation and that genre. Uh, And I think this thing stands up toe to toe. I was, you know, this this movie has been out for 20 years now, as Andrew stated. Uh, And it is um, probably many of you have seen it. But but I think it I think it deserves a second look. And so I'm just going to walk through. I'm just going to walk through the cast. The notable cast, not the entire cast. Uh, Shia LaBeouf, Patricia Arquette, John Voight, Sigourney Weaver, Henry Winkler, Shobin Fallon Hogan, Eartha Kitt, Tim Blake Nelson, Rick motherfucking Fox. Yes. Uh, can De- so look, this 
so, so this is kind of a box office bust. Just too. start with the cast. Start with the cast, and this cast is totally incredible. The storytelling is done in a way that I found completely charming. They stuck with the book in a lot of ways and also kind of did their own thing in important ways. The way they told the story was really, really lovely. Uh, and I'm watching this movie with my kids and they're like, yeah, this is fine, Dad. This is a good... And meanwhile, I'm like overwhelmed by how good this movie You're was. You're remembering turning pages in the book when you yes. watch it. You're like, oh my God, I, this, this is season one Game of Thrones page for page remake. And, and and it's really saccharine and and sort of pulpy and and it, it, this is not high literature or or even high filmmaking, but that does not change the fact that it's an absolutely fantastic story. The story is really good, and and you get to the punchline, and you're like, you, you can kind of see it from a million miles oh, away, yeah. right? It's like, okay, I got it, uh, but. It, it's so, so well done, and the acting is so good, and it doesn't take itself too seriously, much like a watermelon watch. Uh, I was like, this is amazing, and how is it that I've never seen this? How is it that this is not the Sandlot? Because I think this thing stands toe-to-toe. If you haven't seen Holes, and I think there's probably only about two of you, maybe three I'm, is my guess, I'm based on that you the conversations it. I've had with people. It, it stands up. There is nothing about this movie that felt dated or like it, 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 nothing about it. I was like, this movie is just as good today as it was when it was made. There's no technological problems with it. There is no pacing problems with it. The pacing is great. The storytelling is great. The acting is great. Uh, the story is great. And it's before Shia LaBeouf changed his name to Post Malone. <laughs> Oh, that was good, Andrew. I don't, I don't think Richard liked that joke at all. But I uh, that really has gone liked. straight over my head. I've, I've no <laughs> idea what that's referencing. I'm afraid. Are you familiar with who Shia LaBeouf is? I am. Yes, yes. What are was you, the name of that movie? Are you familiar with Post Malone? I am. I am. I the, have no idea guy. what he, the, the crossover. Shia LaBeouf is. He he made a movie where he played he played Post Malone basically. Yeah. Uh, so holes. I recommend it. That's my other thing for the week. That's I'm a good other thing. I'm sorry to be 19 years late, 20 years late. I apologize. I think it's it's probably quite good being that late because now it also I very much feel like I need to rewatch that because I've you know it's it's been so long that uh, you know I, I remember absolutely loving it you know the first time I saw it, but it, it's certainly been a decade since I last saw it, and I, I definitely think it's one of those films that you can rewatch. <laughs> And I think I think you and I probably watched it in a more like we it came out. You when guys it was are younger. Appropriate. You we're just a little we're a little bit younger than you. And and I, though I'm shocked because you have older kids, I'm surprised it never came. But you were just a little bit too old to watch it when it came That's out. Precisely and right. and yep. Richard and I were, were like right in that zone. There you it, go. It's really good. There's a, I will say there's a li- there's just a tiny bit of CGI in it. Very small though. It's a very small amount of CGI, and and that was dated but it was so short and so brief and so inconsequential the lizards are cgi you guys know the story so and the snake yeah the lizards were cgi and so that was like eh, that's not great but it was so inconsequential to the story that it didn't it didn't bother me at all no and we're we're accustomed to like the our favorite movies having a little bit dated cgi <laughs> that's right True. that's right richard uh underdog.com remember to put a zero 
at the it's this it's the the, the o the at only the o. end the only o the only o is a zero underdog.com studio underdog or just google the fucking watermelon watch because he's the one richard i'm so glad you joined us anything you want to add before we before we check out for the day no that just just thanks very much for having me and yeah um, thanks for kind of being you know enthusiastic about about what i'm doing and yeah just appreciate that we're super pleased to have had you we're glad we could finally make this work Hey, you guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 40 and 20 of the Watch Cooker podcast. Uh, thanks for thanks for checking us out. Go check out go check out Richard's stuff. If, if you don't know, go check out Studio Underdog. Google the Watermelon Watch. Whatever you need to do, check it out. Uh, these are really, really neat watches, and I think he's doing a cool thing. I think he's yes. doing a cool thing. Uh, if you want to check us out, you can do that at watchclicker.com. That's where we post weekly articles, reviews, etc. You can also check us out on Instagram at watchclicker.com or at 40 and 20 underscore watch clicker. If you want to support us, and we really hope you do, you can do that at patreon.com slash 40 and 20. Look, we don't get paid to do this. That's how we get the very small amount of money that we have to pay for hosting and all the other things we have to buy. Uh, patreon.com slash 40 and 20. And don't forget to check us out next Thursday for another hour of watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Bye-bye. Bye.